This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. With me is Kevin Carroll. Kevin, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Pete. Kevin was a guest on the show a few weeks back. He is an apologist who lives in the South Jersey area where the show originates from. So welcome again, Kevin. Today we're going to be talking about evolution. We're going to be continuing the debate that we were having with one of our listeners, Nick from Liverpool, who emailed in three pages of objections to some of the items that we brought in, some of, the, some of the problems that we talked about on previous shows, some of the problems with evolution. So we'll be talking about that today. Evidence for Faith is currently on five stations across the United States. Our website is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can also listen to podcasts on iTunes. If you'd like to email us, email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. So, I have a news item, Kevin, that I thought you might be interested in. This is from the Breakpoint Bulletin newsletter that I get every day, and it talks about something that N.T. Wright put out. N.T. Wright is a theologian from England, and he writes about something he calls echoes of a voice. So, what he's talking about is voices that he believes virtually all human beings and virtually all cultures listen for and know, but are puzzled by. So what's he talking about? Well, the first voice or echo of a voice that he mentions is that all human beings have an understanding of justice, right? Even the youngest child on a playground knows what justice is. And you'll hear kids yell out, that's not fair. You can't do that. Multiple times, too. Right. So where does this sense of justice Come from. Even adults have this sense of justice. And really, don't we spend just an endless amount of effort trying to achieve justice around the world? So this the second echo that M.T. Wright brings out is spirituality. It's that haunting sense that there's more to life than just this physical dimension. So there's this different quality of human life. That's the second echo of the voice. Then the third is what we recognize in relationships, that we sense that we were made for one another, but we wind up constantly messing up those relationships, both on a personal level and even between countries on an international level. So things we notice that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Somehow we're supposed to be in relationship, but yet we get in our own way. And then the fourth is the echo of beauty, right? This haunting quality to beauty that is a signpost to a larger truth that's just around the corner, N.T. Wright describes, just out of sight. So on this show, we discuss the issues of does God exist? And that's one, this is one of the things that are, it's very, 
ethereal, very difficult to pin down, but we still have to recognize that these feelings are there, these intuitions that we have. And it matches with what psychologists have told us about young children, that young children do recognize the existence of God from their earliest childhood. So it has to be something that has to be driven out of them to become an atheist. So, Keith, are you asserting that because of these ethereal qualities that it is more than just a function of us being a biological machine, that it's something more transcendent? Yeah, exactly. That We have to know that there is something more to life than just the physical. Uh, we obviously were designed for a different kind of life, for some other kind of life than what we experience here and now on this planet. And if you have that feeling, that is the Holy Spirit touching you and reaching out to you and trying to enlighten you to that thing which is just around the corner, and that is your relationship with God. Well, there's another news item that is really exciting. I love all this stuff when they look at brains and how they work. This comes from some detailed work that was done with a new diagnostic tool. It's a new type of MRI that allows for microscopic imaging. And what scientists, what researchers found is that the brain is actually much more complex than they ever thought before. So they looked at the synapses between neurons, okay? So the brain cells are connected to each other by very tiny, what essentially you call wires, very similar to the way computer transistors are hooked up to each other. And what they found is that these synapses are number in the thousands instead of the hundreds. So it's just an amazing amount of complexity that they discovered by looking at these microscopic MRI Picture. So just to give you a couple numbers, there's about 90 billion neurons in every brain and 90 billion glial cells, which right now those glial cells are thought to be like insulators and they're not thought to have any processing. But actually a lot of research is being done that possibly those glial cells may also be doing something, maybe adding to the computational power of the brain. But if you imagine a brain cell is looking like a tree and Instead of there being hundreds of connections, imagine that tree, every place there's a leaf. So imagine a big oak tree, every single leaf is a new connection to another oak tree. And then the stem is called the axon on the brain cell. It goes down to something that looks similar to a root system. And that's where that particular brain cell will connect up with other brain cells. So it's connecting up to thousands of other brain cells and tens of thousands of other brain cells connect up to it. So the total number of connections or synapses is just incredible. Billions and well, they don't say in this article that I have, they don't say exactly how many, but it must be trillions upon trillions. So really amazing thing. One, th one of the things they point out is that babies are born with about 2,500 synapses on the average neuron. But as they develop, as the brain develops until roughly these days, uh, maturation occurs between ages 25 and 30, when the number of connections is between 10,000 and 15,000 per neuron, per brain cell. So just an incredible... So th what that means is that the brain, a single human brain, 
we now know is more complex than the entire internet of the earth, all every computer and every connection made by the internet on the entire earth, a single human brain is more complex than that. So an amazing sign of intelligent design, not something that could possibly have happened by random mutation, even given natural selection. And if something like that did come from a random process, it's nothing you would want to trust. So there's no reason to trust it if it comes from a random process. And incidentally, I believe that you'll be talking about randomness and complexity in just a few minutes. So that does tie in to what you're about to speak on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We try to keep these uh, conversations going along similar lines. We want to show not only how Christianity is good for people, good for families, good for society, but we also want to show that it is true, that it does reflect the way things really are, the reality of the world around us. So we do have to address things like the existence of God. We address evolution. Is evolution an answer? Can you do away with God if you believe in evolution? And doesn't science really show that God hasn't done anything? Human beings are just a product of random chance and natural selection. So we argue, no, the science actually shows the opposite. Science actually shows positive evidence that we were designed from the beginning, that we have been created and that we are the product of a maker. Well, that brings us to our email that we got from one of our listeners, Nick from Liverpool, who is in the field of physics or at least his degree is. I'm not sure if he works in that field. But Nick listened to several of our past podcasts in England, and he's wrote us a three-page email that went over point by point several of the issues that he wanted to challenge us with and ask us questions about. So two weeks ago, we spent most of the show going over the first page of his email and talked about some of the issues that he brought up that were challenges to the problems of evolution. And we're going to continue that today. So, Kevin, if you'd like, if you want to just, I guess, read, we'll go section by section and, and read what Nick said and how he challenged us, and we'll respond. Sure, because two weeks ago you were with uh, Kurt Hastings, and obviously I'm not Kurt Hastings. You could say in a way that maybe I'm serving as a Kurt substitute. Well, your name starts with a K, so that's one of the that's rules. True. You have to, it's Keith, Kurt, or Kevin, so you have to have the K in there. Well, I guess you could say in a way I'm kind of like a Kurt Light. There you go. But, uh, so we're going to continue what he was attempting to do. Uh, I won't be exactly like him because I don't have access to what he wrote and the rest of what we're going to talk about today. But I'll try to continue that his quest for truth in these items. Uh, so I guess if you're ready... I'll uh, come up with the questions I came up with and put your feet to the fire. Absolutely. Uh, just a moment of uh, backing up before that. I just had a personal note. When I read uh, Nick's email, I was uh, struck by uh, the length of time he put into it, how heartfelt it was, uh, realizing that uh, that doesn't necessarily mean something is true or not, but it is sometimes a reflection of the person's motive. But I was personally struck by how he described that how he was brought up in a Christian home, and then in essence, if I may paraphrase, he walked away from that faith. Right. And I was intently interested in why that was. Was there some event 
or lack of event happening, as in uh, someone failed to answer his question or make uh, the scriptures relevant that brought on this situation. So I guess I'm putting out an open question to Nick if he would like that or feels uh, safe in sharing that uh, for a point of discussion. Yeah, hopefully he'll write us back and let us know a little more about that. I'm always interested in that kind of thing, too. Yeah, because it's important to me to know, uh, like Rabbi Zechariah, where Christianity has failed somebody. Not in the essence of truth, but in the way we present the truth or we live by the truth. What can we do better to better reflect, reflect Christ? Yeah, great. Yeah, so, but... Uh, Picking up where you guys left off the other time at micro versus macro evolution. And uh, I'll sort of read what Nick wrote here. He said, I found your treatment of this a little confusing. In the first instance, you define microevolution as selection from the gene pool, a concept easily understood. You then went on to define macro evolution as genetic mutation that, to paraphrase, provides new information. I think these ideas are simplistic, but I'll go along with them for the sake of this argument. I do have a problem with the subtext to this discussion, but I'll get back to that. Later in the podcast, you seem to acknowledge that genetic mutation could cause changes, like color. So does your definition of microevolution allow for small genetic mutations or not? And uh, I was wondering, yes, how how is that? So does your definition of microevolution allow for small genetic mutations? How is that pertinent to this discussion of micro versus macro evolution? Yeah, I'm not sure if Nick asked that question because he doesn't understand what micro and macro are, or if he's just saying that maybe he thinks we're not defining it well. But micro and macro evolution are not anything that creationists or intelligent design people invented. These are categories that were developed by evolutionists to describe two completely different areas or types of evolution. And in the past, we've given an illustration. Let's say that evolution was used the category travel. So we're going to have micro travel and micro and macro travel. All right. Now, so micro travel might be walking. Okay. Now, can I get very far by walking? Well, yes. You know, it depends on how long you walk. Right? So if I walk for an hour, I get a certain distance. If I walk for 100 million years, I get a lot further. But now the question is then, what about macro travel? What about traveling to the moon? Can I, if I just walk long enough, won't I get to the moon? Well, now that's the situation that evolution finds itself in, theory of evolution. And Theodosius Dobzhansky was probably the first person to bring up this concept of micro and macro evolution because he recognized that there's a real problem, there's a real difference between just getting around by micro evolution and making the macro leaps that the neo-Darwinian theory requires. Macro leaps would be going from one type of animal to a completely different type of animal. So, Such as from a fruit fly to a... Elephant? Sure. Something like that. Okay. How do you get these macro distances? And it's just simply too simplistic to say, well, I walked there. It'd be like, you know, how did man get to the moon? Well, they walked there. Well, no, that just doesn't happen. So another example you might give is say, Kevin, let's say that I saw you on the other side of the Grand Canyon. 
and I asked you, Kevin, how did you get there? And you said, oh, I, I leaped over. What, what do you mean you leaped over? Can you leap that far? Well, no, I can't leap that far, so I took three or four leaps. It took three or four to leaps to get across. In the midair? <laughs> right, in the midair. So you can see why people might be incredulous that you were actually achieved it that way. Same thing with evolution. It's one thing to say that you can make small changes to the DNA, to the DNA code. And it's quite another thing to say that all of that, those small changes actually mounts up to something as complex, irreducibly complex and specified complex information that we find in DNA. So the, to specifically to Nick's question, he says, does your definition of microevolution allow for small genetic mutations or not? Well, yes, of course, that is the definition of microevolution. So, and that is the standard evolutionary definition. So the big question, and we don't, we don't think there's any problem with microevolution. We think that animals do change over time in small ways. And some of it can even actually be big ways. It depends on how much information is available in the genome or the gene pool to a specific organism. For instance, one organism might have two types of re reproductive system in the genome, okay? So on one end of the scale of organism, there can be egg-laying versions of, say, a reptile. And on the other end of that genome, that genetic information that they, that they share that's already pre-programmed in is giving live birth. So now you've got two essentially different species. One lays eggs and one give, does live birth, but they're really sharing the same genetic information. And that would be the, the transformation that a population might go through to get from uh, one type to the other would still be microevolution because it's not coming up with anything new. But am I correct in understanding you that what you are saying is that a whole lot of little microevolution changes will never add up to a macroevolution change, as in no matter how much a frog might change, it will never change enough cumulatively into a bird. Correct. Yep, that's exactly right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kevin Harrell. Hey, Keith. Well, the next uh, section deals with sudden changes. And in a way, this is kind of related to what you were just talking about. But this is more of a temporal question. He says in his email, this is the part of the argument I find most troublesome. You say you have read much on evolution, but you make some crass blunders here, which begs the question of whether you are being disingenuous. There are no sudden changes. And to my knowledge, he says, no evolutionist worth their salt has ever claimed that there is. Changes take place tiny step by tiny step over millions of years. The basic body plan for all modern mammals and vertebrates in general was laid down over hundreds of millions of years. We are not talking sudden. So he gives a couple examples of dinosaurs and reptiles and land mammals and turtles and how things happen. But then he goes on to say, incidentally, how do you account for vestibule rear legs in whales? And lastly, in this section he says, to claim that whole packages of changes have to happen all at once is quite frankly ridiculous, and the theory of evolution makes no such claim. 
The giraffe's neck did not grow to its curtain length suddenly, nor did its heart adapt suddenly. These are silly arguments and demonstrate a lack of understanding. And as I read that, I, I must confess, what popped in my head is what you had on an earlier podcast when you mentioned punctuated equilibrium. But that wasn't a, I don't if I'm remembering correctly, that's not a creationist term or theory, that's actually an evolutionary theory. That's right. So maybe you'd care to address this thing, because he's quite confident that evolution, and he says, only worth their salt, and evolution believes this, only happens in very small changes over very long periods of time. So I'd say, what do you uh, think of that? Well, yeah, he seems to be unfamiliar with Stephen Jay Gould's theory of punctuated equilibrium, which Gould brought up because the fossil record simply doesn't support the neo-Darwinian theory. And so he is a creationist or an evolutionist? He's a paleontologist and evolutionary paleontologist. An evolutionist. Yeah, so an expert in his field. And, you know, his punctuated equilibrium theory hasn't really taken off with the rest of the evolutionary community because they realize that that also can't be true because evolution just doesn't permit such sudden leaps and that of course is what nick is so offended by and and we're not saying that evolution made sudden leaps we're saying that evolution is false because you need to have sudden leaps that's the only way to get functional forms across the grand canyon yeah exactly you've got to make a big leap to get across that's right you can't take several tiny little steps across to get to the other side or you can't walk to the moon by climbing up a hill you know you have to get there by some other means now he mentions in here about he says he asks us how do we account for vestigial rear legs in whales well we don't account for them because they don't exist so this is a myth that evolutionists love to tell each other to try to support the data for evolution but simply not true there are no whales that have ever been caught, that have had legs dangling from their sides. There are no femurs found inside on a whale skeleton. So this is just pure junk science. What there are is in some modern whales, there are, they'll have a pair of bones that's in the pelvis region that's used to anchor organs to. You can imagine a whale, you know, it's a lot of blubber and a lot of sloshing around in there. So these organs, particularly the reproductive organs, have to be attached to something to keep them from being ripped apart and damaged just by the whale's own movement. So these small bones are not attached to the vertebral column. They're used simply to strengthen the pelvic wall and to anchor the organs too. So they are not vestigial. They have a specific purpose. They don't in any way relate to legs. So that's that that claim. Then, what about the part about little tiny changes happening so slowly that, like, the draft of his neck grew longer really, 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 really slow, then he wouldn't have the problems that you talked about in other podcasts as in needing a specially designed uh, system so literally that the blood doesn't blow his brains out when he bends over to drink. What would you say to that theory that that's how he gets around the need for having it all designed all at once? Yeah, it's like saying that if you, you've got all these complex parts that are working together and the way to make them happen is to have them all grow together. 
problem is that they don't function unless they're fully formed. So, for instance, the special valve system that the giraffe needs doesn't work unless it's fully formed. The sponge system that collects blood in the, in the giraffe's brain, again, doesn't work unless it's there from the beginning. So, so, so there had to be a biological leap in the animal, like suddenly the sponge system was there. Right, so it can work. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And then it has to be there fully operational. Right, right. And, and so there's many examples of that. It's, you know, the giraffe's neck is only one, but there's many examples of that kind of thing that has to be all there. And, and uh, I mean, we're mentioning, you know, three or four items, but if you break down each of those parts, each of those parts is made up of hundreds of other parts, and all of those have to be working together, too. So, so that's the issue with this, you know, sudden changes. We're not saying that evolution says there are sudden changes. We're saying that in order to proceed, you have to have sudden changes. Therefore, evolution is false, at least macro evolution. Okay, I, I understand that, Keith. Uh, next, uh, complexity. And uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier, beginning of the show. Where Nick says, you state that Darwin's theory, by which I assume you mean the theory of evolution in general, not the same thing, because like all science, our body of knowledge increases and our understanding improves and our theories are refined, is not good at explaining complexity. This is a rather surprising statement, because I am sure the vast majority of the world's scientists would disagree with you. Perhaps you could give an example of your claim, maybe some research that backs it up, because you cannot understand how complexity emerges does not mean it is not so, or that no one can understand it. I am fascinated to hear the hard evidence that life is designed. If it is compelling, I think it would do your cause a great service. I am serious. I mean, excuse me, it may even change my mind if it is convincing. How is microbiology advancing this point of view? Can you give some references? Okay, so... This just gives you an idea that Nick is very open-minded. He's being, this is a really great email. He's being honest and saying that he would actually, if he had hard evidence, he might change his mind. So I think probably one of the best books that's been written on this topic is Signature in the Cell by Dr. Stephen Meyer. He was a guest on this show. You could, Nick, you could listen to that podcast if you wanted. Any of the websites on intelligent design would be useful to go to and take a look at some of the positive evidence. Any of the books written by William Dembski, who talks about the specified complex information that is present in the DNA, and hopefully we'll get into that a little bit a little further on. We'll get into some of that irreducible complexity, some of that specified complexity. It's just overwhelming the evidence that shows that life was had to have actually been designed or you don't get life. So, so, so you mentioned, and you periodically mention uh, names of people right. in intelligent design who are doing these things, and if one was uh, really desiring more, they could certainly go on the website and find some of these people and look into them. Absolutely. Um, so if, even exactly. like a little advertisement, if one would listen to many of the podcasts, then they could get even more names Right. which to research to see that you're not just pulling things out of the air, right. but you are referencing somebody. 
there, there's another website that I found while I was preparing for today's show called DetectingDesign.com. This is by a physician by the name of Sean Pittman, who has the science background and looks at all the genetics and some of the things that we'll be talking about in a bit. So that's another website, really fascinating, excellent website. Okay, well, we have to uh, continue on here. I see the clock is uh, starting to tick away. Well, let's remind people then that they're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kevin Harrell. And we're talking about an email that was sent to us by Nick from Liverpool, who takes us to task for some of the things that we said about the problems with evolution. So we're doing a little mini debate here with what he's written us. Well, Keith, uh, continuing with his email, the next section is on fixation. And I must confess that it is actually the section following this that really interests me. So I'm going to paraphrase a little in the interest of time so we can get to the part that I like. Okay. Kind of like dessert. I love cookies. I like to get them. On fixation, uh, basically he challenges the use of your brown rabbit, the infamous brown rabbit example. And in doing so, he contends that the evolutionary process is not only typified, but it's even validated by the isolation of species from other species, as in the island of Galapagos. How would you respond to his statement, this is how evolution works, not by the one odd white rabbit in a large established population of brown? Okay. Well, the point we were trying to make in when we were talking about what happens when you get a mutation in a population, a specific organism, and you get a new mutation that does something that's different for that population. Well, what we were, the reason we were bringing this up is because we were trying to show just how difficult it is for mutations to actually do anything. Okay, so the example we gave was if you have a thousand brown rabbits and then a rabbit gets a mutation that gives it say white fur, what's going to happen to that genetic information for white fur? Well, it's just going to be absorbed into the population of the thousand brown rabbits, and it's going to disappear. The, the thousand brown rabbits are not going to turn all white. So what would have to happen is that you'd have to have some kind of stress on the population so that predators would maybe be able to pick out instead of what would probably happen is the predator would pick out the white rabbit because right. they're brown because it's you know camouflaging them. But let's say that maybe a small population of rabbits went to the Arctic. Okay, Now that white rabbit has a an advantage, a survival advantage, because now the camouflage has changed. And what will happen is that the brown rabbits will die off. But what we were trying to point out is that that is the kind of difficult thing, difficult situation that you have to have happen. You can't just have mutations, right? If you get mutations, they're, they stay around, but then if they're not passed on continuously, they don't survive. The, the animals that have that mutation can die off. The mutation can be remutated again, you know. So it's not as simple as just thinking that a certain population is going to get some kind of advantage, and then that is going to just go throughout the whole population. It's just not that simple. So what evolutionists have is something they call fixation, which means that this becomes a permanent part of the genome. So, for instance, in human beings, while there are different genes that will describe for different color hair or different heights or things like that, they 
we all still have the same genes for you know how to make a spine, let's, let's say, because right. all humans have a spine. So you don't have some human beings being born uh, without a spine, unless it, you know, it's a really a catastrophic mutation. But in the gene pool that we're sharing, it, the genes to make a spine have been fixed. Okay, They're in everybody. And that's what you need to get to make progress. Because you have to go, for instance, and in, you know, we have a spine because we're vertebrates. So you have to have, in order to advance as a vertebrate into a, another type of animal, You've got to start from that population that's where everything is fixed. So what he's talking about, these bottlenecks and how you, the Galapagos Islands, that is what you need. It's not just as simple as to have a simple mutation and then you know everything is going to adjust to that mutation. You've got to have these rare incidents where the population gets divided up and you know a small number, it has to be a small number for genetic drift to occur then that there's a chance that that mutation might become more popular and then might become fixated. Okay, Keith, um, the next section on irreducible complexity and lack of transition of forms. Right. I must confess that uh, I've known that you have studied this area of evolution, intelligent design, a whole lot more than I have, and I can see that really uh, wet your whistle, if I have to say, but as what I had learned in my college training and listening to the podcast, this area to me is a really key area, at least, at least in my opinion. So I would really like uh, to press you on this because Nick says under this section, I can't believe how often creationists trot out these old stale arguments. No matter how often it is shown, how the eye can evolve in an incremental way, no matter how many species are cited that demonstrate those incremental steps, and no matter how often it is demonstrated that the eye has evolved many times, it is still quoted as an example of irreducible complexity. Come on, guys, get some new arguments, he says. The same goes for transitional forms. There are lots of them. I could trot them out, but the list itself is a tired old rhetorical response. Just read the literature, please. By the way, he says, could you explain why God would give the octopus a superior designed eye to human, his special species? And whilst we're on a topic of poor design, how does creationism account for the recurrent laryngeal nerve? I apologize for that word. Laryngeal nerve. Thank you. A silly couple of feet in humans, but a ridiculous several meters in the giraffe. If a creationist theory cannot explain such anomalies, it will fail. Incidentally, evolution accounts for them very well. And uh, when, what came to my mind, and I hope you will uh, talk about it, is the Cambrian explosion, because that really has uh, struck me as far as the validity of the evolutionary theory. So can I press you on these things? Yeah. We, we mentioned, I think, Two weeks ago, when we talked on Nick's uh, letter, we talked about the Cambrian explosion. And he says that basic body plans for all more modern animals were laid down over hundreds of millions of years. But actually, that's not true. The Cambrian explosion lasted for about 10 million years. And all of the basic body plans are laid down then at the beginning of the Cambrian period. So, you know, so he's just wrong about that. Now, transitional forms. It's true there are some I, some 
fossils that can be laid out as a potential transitional form between two different types of organisms. But the problem is that even different types of animals have a range of morphology or a range of shape. So, for instance, you can have some dogs that are more cat-like, and you can have some cats that are a little bit more dog-like. So if you were to find a fossil of an you know, one of those extremes, so a very small dog and it sort of looked cat-like, uh, you could say, well, that's a transitional form. Okay, but in real life, we know that's actually a dog. Um, if we dug up its fossil and we didn't know that such a dog could exist, maybe we would think, okay, well, that's maybe a transitional form. But the real problem for evolution is that there aren't thousands upon thousands of transitional forms. Because that step-by-step -step process that Nick was talking about ought to leave the fossil record literally littered with thousands upon thousands with a very gradual range from everything from bacteria to microbiologists. And this is the, the, the simple fact is that, that such a record doesn't exist, which is why the paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould had to come up with this theory of punctuated equilibrium, because there simply aren't anywhere near enough transitional forms to make the neo-Darwinian theory viable, given the record that we have in the fossils. But is it safe to say that in their defense that there's a lack of transitional fossils, but there's also not very many other fossils either? So if there's not a lot of any fossils, then that doesn't mean anything. But is that really true? Is there a lack of transitional forms, and then there is a sudden uh, exhibition of other fossils. So it's right. not that's, there is? Well, that's what there is of the Cambrian explosion. I mean, you have layers that are perfectly capable of fossilizing. In fact, there are microbes that have been discovered that are at that layer. And then you go immediately above it, and suddenly there's this explosion of, of thousands upon thousands of different forms of life. All the basic Virtually all the basic body plans that appear later are all right there. So, but maybe Keith, uh, the reason there's no transitional records is uh, fossils because they're a little older, and over time, heat and pressure just obliterate every single fossil in those preceding uh, layers. Well, what about that idea? There's just no evidence to show that that would be true, and it would be a real post hoc. Uh, type of way to argue, you know, that I can't prove my point, therefore I'm going to make up this version that my evidence accidentally got destroyed. It's kind of like the dog ate my homework kind of excuse. But so, didn't they find in those preceding layers soft membrane, something about soft membrane fossils? Yeah. So there was fossils there. Yeah, very tiny. So, and yep, soft ones. And soft. So if the pressure and heat destroyed the more viable ones, why didn't it destroy the softer ones? Right, exactly. So it, it just doesn't wash. Now, let's talk about eye evolution because he brings that up. Uh, he says that no matter how many times it's shown that the eye can evolve in an incremental way. Well, what does that mean? What, what it means is that there are, there are many different ways of detecting light. And you can arrange those ways of detecting light from simple to complex. That does not mean that that's the way things evolved. This is famously put forward by researchers Nielsen and Pelger, who made this theoretical evolutionary system from an eye spot to eye spot tissue that had a depression, so it was kind of cup-shaped, to an orb around that 
had like a pinhole to then a cornea being laid over the top and then a lens being in the middle. And so this apparent progression, but what do we find when we actually look at organisms? Well, if you look at organisms that have these types, of course, a simple eye spot is very frequently in a simple type of an animal and a more complex eye is, is frequently in a complex type of organism. But other than that, you just don't find any real system that you could see that they evolved one from the other. When you look at the Cambrian explosion, there are at least three different organisms that have three different types of eyes. You've got the trilobites that had a compound eye, conodonts, which are an eel-like animal, have an orbed eye, and then another orbed eye is, uh, there's a shrimp-like animal in that Cambrian explosion. So right from the beginning, you have very complex eyes and different types of eyes. So uh, it's simply not true that you find this progression that Nelson and Pelger talk about. So it's, you know, Kevin, it's like if I was to write a paper about a, a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. You know, I mean, I could be very eloquent and, and wax poetical about the description of how this perpetual motion machine works and all the parts that fit together and how it works. But that doesn't mean that it actually works. I mean, you go to look at it and it just doesn't work. So it's the same thing with the eye evolution, you know. They supposedly claim that eyes evolved between, some say, between 50 to 100 different times in different organisms, organisms that were unrelated, or at least had, if they are related, it's they're related by organisms that don't have eyes. So in different branches, eyes evolved all this, these many times. Well, it's just not what we would find. For instance, when you breed animals, cattle, dogs, uh, right. or you, when you're doing this, why don't we find breeding where we're getting different types of eyes, right? Why can't we breed for that, okay? You know, there, there's just no match to the tree of life. Or, or think about this, a gene pool. So we talked about the a wide gene pool where you have, at one end, you've got an animal that is lays eggs to reproduce, and at the other end, you have live birth, okay? And that, that that organism is sharing the same genetic information. It's duplicate genetic information that allows two types of giving birth. Why don't we find that in a pool of organisms, right? In a, a population of organisms, why don't we find the spot, that, that light-detecting spot, um, some of them have a cup shape. Why don't we have that, right? You just don't see any progression at all. So although it sounds nice on paper, it really just doesn't work out. Now, we can look at the complexity issue because he mentions that in here, irreducible complexity. Well, the light-sensitive spot itself is an irreducibly complex system. What does it, that mean? It means that without one of the parts being there, it simply won't work. Okay. So you have at least a minimum of five different proteins. Okay, now proteins are not just globs of jelly. Proteins are very complex incredibly complex structures that do a specific job. You have to have five specific ones that work in cooperation with each other in complex protein systems and neurochemical pathways just to be able to tell light from dark. So, you know, the evolutionists who write up these things, you know, start out with a light-sensitive spot. But that the problem is, where did you get the light-sensitive spot from? Evolution just has no explanation because it doesn't function at all 
unless it has at least that level of complexity. So all of these systems, all the ways of seeing that are out there are themselves integrated systems. They work with brains, neural systems there, uh, and you take one part out of them and they don't work. They're, it's essentially they're a way of converting photons to electricity. That's what all visual systems do, at least at the basic level. Well, that's a very complex thing to do. Transferring photons and making them represent something electrically, that's very complex, even if you're just trying to tell the difference between light and dark. So, yeah, complexity, it really does fascinate. I can see how it's very important in this evaluation because it kind of speaks contra to the idea that you can start out with a real simple thing and just add little, little, tiny, tiny, tiny changes over long, long times yeah, and right. wind up with a super complex thing that works. Right. Well, why aren't we seeing it then? You know, like uh, look at uh, flatworms. So flatworms have eye spots, right? Why are there of all the many hundreds and hundreds of different types of flatworms, why isn't there a flatworm, a type of flatworm that has where the eye spot's starting to dimple? Right? Right. I mean, you just it's supposedly so simple. It's so simple that the eye has evolved on its own uh, 50 to 100 different times. Then how come we don't actually see it? Right? How come in uh, a population of flatworms you only have eye spots, period, one type? I don't know that answer. Yeah. I, I can see the clock is ticking down. Yep. And whether you want to continue this in another broadcast, I guess it's up to you. But maybe lastly, in our last minute here, make it a little more personal. And keep, Why do you have such a passion for this evolution intelligence design debate? Why is it so important to you? I mean, it's just not something that you just wake up in the morning and I want to beat up the evolution guys. <laughs> no. no, there's a positive aspect to it, right? What is it for you? Well, really for me, I, I mean, I should say, I don't think that in order to be a Christian, you need to say that you don't believe in evolution. Right. In fact, as I've said in the past, I do believe in evolution. I believe in microevolution. I believe that animals were designed to adapt over time and to change. So... For me, what I think it is, is just the, the confidence that you can have when you realize that the created order, God's created world, has evidence behind it. And, and they can really see that God does exist, that he did create us, that he does care for us, and that, that you know, this is the path to a happy life. So I invite people to, you know, you don't necessarily have to give up your views of evolution, but you do have to at least be open to the idea of a creator and a designer. So you could say it's evidence for faith. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And thank you, Kevin, for being on board with us today in Kirk's absence. I really appreciate that. If you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, please send your comments and questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please include the call letters of the station that you listen to us. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.